and I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. My name is Eric Arneson, and today I'm going to be interviewing Dana Trell, who's getting a PhD in history at the University of Waterloo. I know that we've been releasing episodes a little slowly lately. Um, I should have probably taken a little bit of time off for the holidays because I've been really busy, but this is our second December episode. I'm hoping to get two out in January as well, but we've fallen a little bit behind. But in the meantime, hope you're having a great holiday season. I hope that you can sit back and enjoy this fascinating conversation about Joaquin de Fiori, the apocalypse, and the nature of our understanding of history and time. So today, Dan, we are going to talk about Joaquim de Fiore. Did I say that right? Correct, yeah. Joaquim uh, de Fiore. Yep. So basically, you uh, released a lecture a few months ago called, um, what was it, uh, Something and the Apocalypse and uh, some other apocalyptic stuff. What was the name of the lecture? Uh, well, I mean, the original name of the lecture, the, the, paper i suppose that i wrote was for 1260 days they'll prophesy in sackcloth was the name of it Mm -hmm. and that's based off of a passage in revelations and that was an idea that was taken up by joaquin mafior that um basically in 1260 approximately or i suppose it was taken up by his his supporters not him himself he wasn't so specific in naming a specific end date or when the apocalypse would come but his followers they they thought that it was 1260 because it says in the book of revelations for 1260 days you'll prophesy in sackcloth and so these were all mendicant monks franciscans who took these really intense vows of poverty and kind of rigid asceticism and they that's why they went around the world to try to spread the uh, the gospel because they were essentially imminentizing the eschaton. They were mm-hmm. bringing about the end of times because uh, the end of times can't come until first Antichrist is defeated. And secondly, um, there's an idea that all the pagan and Jewish nations will be reconciled with Christianity. And so Christianity will just become this one global force into which all other religious differences would be subsumed. And that would bring about an end to history. It's kind of like a similar to the idea of like a Marxist Hegelian dialectic where the end of history occurs in a classless society. But this is from the you know uh, late 1100s, early 1200s, and these were ideas that were rooted in uh, Christian universalism and apocalypticism. So that's sort of what I was looking at in that paper. Okay, so <clears throat> let's let's uh, let's set like a historical picture here. So this was yes. uh, like late 1100s, early 1200s, because uh, Joaquin de Fiore died in 1202. 
something like that? Yes, that's correct. Um, so the Franciscans, uh, they were already in existence. How, how long have they been around? So the Franciscans weren't around yet. Uh, um, so- they come around in the first or second decade of, uh, I mean, St. Francis himself was alive, uh-huh. but the Franciscan order hadn't been founded until I think the 1520s or uh, sorry, the 1220s. Oh. And they are basically set up or given legitimacy by the papacy in order to be an arm of apostolic poverty on behalf of the church because wait, wait, there so, was a movement. So friend, yep. so St. Francis and uh, Joaquin de Fiore were contemporaries. Uh, yes, but I guess huh. Francis was a child while Joaquin of Fiore was in his last years. Oh. And, and Francis himself was not what we would call a Joachite or a Wachamite. Um, it was his followers, um, people like Bonaventure, uh-huh. people like Francis Bacon much later. These people would be, um, they were Franciscans and they were interested in, some of the ideas, the speculations that Joachim of Fior had about history. Well, when you were looking, so w- were you looking at this period of time? Uh, first of all, uh, like what attracted you to Joachim de Fiore originally? Was it was it his ideas, or was it was it like uh, something that was going on during the the 13th century that you were really fascinated by, or uh, or what? How did you how did you stumble across him? I've so my first. I suppose there's there's two vectors to my first like initiation into Joachim of Fior. Um, they were that was just kind of like a name on the wind. But the two places that I first heard the name was one in the index of Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy. Really? Yes. When he gives like a giant genealogy of the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. He roots it in Joachim of Fior. And now that's that's fascinating. Uh, dubious or questionable, but the well, story was there and the interest was sparked. Well, I mean the the fascinating part of that is like how did how did Robert Anton Wilson come across him? Well, he was a kind of a well-known not well-known figure, but there's a guy named Herbert Grunmann mm-hmm. who was a historian in Germany during the war. And he did a ton of work on um, spiritual Franciscans on the heretical movements in the middle ages. So the Cathars mm-hmm. uh, and on how the church dealt with them basically through the, the two mendicant orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. And so he uh, kind of created this giant area of interest and then um, a, a woman named Marjorie Reeves came along, and I think she was – I'm not sure, but uh, she published her works through the Warburg Institute. So okay. like the same people who published Picatrix. And um, they uh, they kind of together spawned a renaissance in um, Joachim scholarship, and I imagine that Robert Anton Wilson got it from there. So that, but what the link is, is utopianism. So the idea is that like in the Illuminatus trilogy, the Illuminati are trying to bring about some sort of, uh, you know, 
end or you end utopia, mm-hmm. but nobody knows what it is. Like, is it anarchism? Is it full communism? Is it some sort of like spiritual brotherhood? You know, what, what is it? And everybody seems to be debating as to what that third age of the Holy spirit is going to look like, or is going to be. Um, and so that's, I think where Robert Anton Wilson got, uh, the, and he's only one half of the authorship, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think, Robert is it she, Robert Shea? 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 She? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it may also be him and I don't know anything about him. Um, I just know that he wrote good books. <laughs> yeah. Actually, and in I, the that's up- the only thing of his that I've ever read, I think. The the other vector is Umberto Eco in the name of the rose. Okay, if you know that book, um, yes, I love that book. I love Umberto Eco. He's he was yeah. one of my favorite authors. Um, so Fra Dolcino, uh-huh. who's mentioned in that book, is part of this movement called the Dulcianites, mm-hmm. and they're basically um, a Joachim of Fior spiritual Franciscan cult. That they they think that the key to unlocking the third age of the Holy Spirit is radical apostolic poverty. But right. the church kept trying to make them concede on that and say, look, you can use property that we technically own. And then that way you you won't actually be like starving in the streets and like dying or um, but. They were saying, like, no, we need to reprioritize our values to the point where all material things are useless to us. And only through that can we, like, achieve, um, I guess, union with the divine. That concept itself is is really fascinating. I, it, it see, I, I'm not sure if it um, – how, how core it is to, like, the discussion of, like, uh, some of that other uh, Waukee – all right, hold on. What's the correct adjective? Joaquinist? Joaquinist? So there's, I see all sorts of uses, but uh-huh. it depends. So there's Wakamite, uh huh, or Joachite, I've heard, or um, Wakamist, or it really doesn't matter. Like, because well, nobody I... can, there's no consensus. But I, I say, uh, uh, Wakamite or Joachite okay. e- interchangeably. All right. So, so the the Wakamite concept of like uh, so uh, like one of the things I really want to talk about is how um, he influenced our concept of time, you know, which yes. we talked about a little bit, like this concept of time having uh, an end. But um, but this other thing, the the radical poverty, or uh, you had a you have a better term for it, but the the sort of like radical poverty and how that. Um, aids you know the the reformation of the of the world or the or the the goal of the the monks like that's so fascinating and it's you know it's it's something that the church had a lot of trouble with yes you know, absolutely they, they did not want to give give up their wealth and so like it in is hindsight, the source of heresy oh yeah and, but, and i would it, say all heretical groups they are rooted in this this <laughs> issue of heretical poverty because mm-hmm. or of apostolic poverty let's say apostolic poverty yeah yeah, it, um, that's a fascinating one. Do you know where that where that came from? Like the the yeah. poverty idea. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it has its roots in the gospels. So okay. the gospels there are, but the problem is, it's where do you place 
emphasis on the gospels. Um, so there are different emphases that you can place and the people who are defending apostolic poverty place emphasis on the verses that say you should, you know, consider the lilies and you should, um, uh, you know, not even carry a walking stick. You carry nothing with you when you go to evangelize to the world and that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is uh, for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. So th there were people, uh, especially in the early centuries of Christianity, like Roman aristocrats and stuff, and they had an embarrassment of riches. And mm -hmm. so they gave away like tremendous amounts of their money. And that set the foundation for the kind of imperial infrastructure of the Catholic church. Hmm. And, um, but there, where the apostolic poverty thing really starts from, like where it really picks up is in, I would say the fifth century with the monks in Egypt, the desert fathers, people like St. Anthony mm -hmm. and people like St. Benedict and all of these famous um, monks who went out and retreated into basically the desert and lived in caves and meditated for or they their... sat on top of poles. Yes. I mean, in the stylite. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, that's one of my all favorite kinds of, yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, aesthetic athleticism or something, just different yeah. extremes that you can push. And so, that's really kind of uh that was a fertile ground for the development of the ideals of apostolic poverty but you know there's there's also precedent for that in the greco-roman world mm -hmm. um but it's for different reasons like most uh philosophers tend to um prescribe being fairly not like aesthetic or ascetic but to be frugal or to be plain to to take the middle path um sure but and then you've got like the extreme cases too like diogenes the cynic right who lived in a wine jug right exactly yeah. um so by the time it gets around to what happens is that like so there is that kind those kinds of monks in the desert but in europe um the monk communities very <clears throat> quickly uh they you know withdrew into the mountains they set up their monasteries they cleared swamps they cut down forests they created vineyards because the idea is that work is prayer so that right. if you're working hard then you are kind of praying or you are doing the great work you're you're fighting the good fight and so these monks basically created tremendous amount of value and they got filthy rich, mm -hmm. not independently because they had vows of poverty, but collectively as an institution, they got extremely wealthy. And so there were successive reform movements all throughout the Middle Ages Um the Benedict, so there's the Benedictines, and then they take up the the or, the rule of Saint Benedict, which is a pretty good rule uh, if you want to build a monastic community to hang out together, mm -hmm. <laughs> adopt the rule of Saint Benedict. But 
they got rich and then they had reform. So we have like the Cistercian reform Mm -hmm. and then the Cistercians get really rich eventually. And, (laughs) uh, and that's when we start to see all these new orders (laughs) cropping up. And a lot of them are trying to become very simple. And Joachim of Dior is one of these people who he was a Benedictine and then he, that wasn't hardcore enough for him. So he became a Cistercian and that wasn't hardcore enough for him. They made him abbot against his own will. He just wanted to be like a wandering ascetic and like travel around and basically climb mountains and have mystical experiences. That was more his thing. Um, But he was also grounded and rooted in the politics of his day and age and talked with popes and, you know, Richard the Lionhearted and stuff like that. So that that sort of cycle of like, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's become monks and we'll be ascetic and we'll work really hard. uh, But then like that ends up generating wealth and then they have to like strip it all over and break it down again. Yes. Um, Like that's a fascinating concept, too. Can I continue on that thread? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens is that... um, Basically, a whole bunch of uh, like waves of heretical movements all throughout Europe start breaking out. We have um, the Beguines and the Begards and the Cathars and um, the Free Spirit movement and all these different groups who are saying that the church is, if they were really the true inheritors of, of the Gospels and the Gospel message, then they would renounce their wealth. Well, the church can't exist as like a governmental instituting body um, if it renounces all its wealth. So they started saying like, no, it is heretical if you declare that the church has to be apostolically poor. You can be poor, but you can't demand from us that we are poor. And that's what these heretic groups were doing. And so the church plucked two of these groups First, there was uh, St. Dominic, and they basically utilized him in a a preaching of orthodoxy campaign, and they largely set up the bounds of Catholic orthodoxy in southern France and Spain by preaching with the Dominicans, and um, they were a mendicant order. And then the Franciscan arm, they, they took the Franciscans and they basically certified them and said, like, you guys are certified to preach, but there's a hierarchical structure in place and we will be able to um, keep basically heretical outbreaks under control. So the church was creating kind of modes of religious life, various kinds of modes. So it's like you want to be an extreme poverty person. That's how, how you feel you need to to act. Then you should go and be a Franciscan or it's like you want to go and be a missionary. You should go be a Dominican or you want to live the comp- contemplative life in your cell. You should go be, I don't know, a, a Carthusian or something like that. Just there are so many different kinds of outlets for the kind of religious life that you want to lead. And that's kind of what the church was setting up. And so Joachim of Fior comes about in that era. Well, just before that era. And he had these prophecies about history. He basically saw history through a set of 
concordances. So he saw that the Old Testament and the New Testament mirrored each other in all of these really intricate ways. And this is something that he claimed to have received in a vision. And it's a very, you could say, Kabbalistic or like um, Hecalotic vision. It's like the chariot of Ezekiel with these spinning wheels. Um, So he gets one of these visions while he's on Mount Tabor, which is where he believed that the um, transfiguration of Jesus occurred uh, in the Bible. The some of the disciples go up Mount Tabor, and there mm. Jesus is there with his face, and it's all this radiant white light. And he's there, I think, with Moses and Abraham, and they've got white light faces, and they get this kind of revelation um, experience. And so Joaquin of Fior went there. Because he was living in Sic- around Sicily in southern Italy, mm-hmm. it was easy for him in that time, um, around the around the Crusade time, to go and visit these biblical sites. And now, when you go and visit these places, it makes them come alive historically, and so you start to develop these geographical pictures of the world that are less cartoony or less impressionistic. You start to fill out. Um, your your biblical narrative with actual places and actual people. And so this gave him a sense of history that was rooted in scripture. But what he did then was if we have the age of the father, which is the old Testament period Uh and it's ruled by certain principles like justice and wrath and that kind of stuff, the, the nasty fatherly aspects of God. And then we have, the age of the sun, which was the age of the New Testament, leading up to and just past Joachim's lifetime, then there would be, by correspondence, a third age of the Holy Spirit. Right, with a new New Testament? And that's where it gets really heretical. So Joachim (laughs) of Fior never proclaimed that there would be a new New Testament, but followers of Joachim of Fior did. So the followers of Joachim de Fior. So he, so, so in your, in your lecture, you talked about like, uh, Joaquin never got, um, canonized or anything. And it was probably right. because of the sort of stuff that he didn't, right. He was, he almost was like, even though he never said it, his followers were sort of like, it's time for, you know, a brand new Christianity, like a post-Christian Christianity or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's that so many people came in his wake mm-hmm. and used his idea that it made the church nervous to make him a saint because his ideas are so easily uh, prone to heretical flights of fancy. All right. So and, hold, hold on. I have a question then. Um, yep. Now – so a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, uh, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, his his concept of sort of like the geography of the activities in the in the Bible and the New Testament and the Old Testament, you know, helped him sort of gain kind of like a spatial awareness of yep. of the, you know, the, the mythos of Christianity. But you're also talking about how this helped him develop a sense of history and his right. his sense of history is one of the um is one of is like sort of a profound shifting point in in western in western cultures 
way of looking at itself. Um, right. <coughs> excuse me. But so can you tell us how did we look at, how did our ancestors, our European ancestors look at history before uh, Joaquin de Fiore um, right. mucked it up for us? So if we look at the, there's the Greco-Roman mode of doing history and okay. it is largely causal. So it's based in knowing the causes of why things happened. So if you okay. look at Herodotus or Thucydides, they're very interested in knowing the causes of things. And they're also, um, at least in the case of Herodotus, trying to preserve the deeds of men mm-hmm. so that they will not fade in time. And so it's trying to like capture the essence of great people and convey that information. And the way that they do that, the way that you find out causes is through inquiry. Okay. So history means inquiry in Greek. So it's asking questions and then following these chains of causality. And that, that makes me think of Aristotle a lot, like the the sort of chain of causality idea. Um, yeah. And then, so do you think that this uh, this concept of like preserving great men was sort of tied into how uh, like Greco Roman religion worked, like um, or how how politics and religion were so closely intertwined, where you know you'd end up having emperors, uh, and they could just come from you know some angry barbarian in the military could rise to be emperor and just the fact that he made it to emperor was sort of like oh he must be divine or yeah well he has a divine genius mm-hmm. or is is usually how it's framed it's like his mind is divine rather than his person <laughs> or his guiding um, his guiding spirit or intellect yeah. yeah his daimon we could mm-hmm. use that term liberally if we wanted to <laughs> yeah um, but that's kind of the idea it's to, it's to create some a little bit of distance between his own divinity and the divinity of his essence. Okay. And so, Um, but then you, then the historian would want to record his deeds, you know, the, you know, like, and, and make sure that those are passed down. Right. right. Okay. So there's this idea in the classical world of exemplar Mm -hmm. of kind of just like guiding exemplars that are meant as like morally edifying stories. And, a lot of history in the Greco-Roman world, um, like Livy, for example, is designed to be morally edifying to make people think about, you know, the golden days of your ancestors when people were strong and virtuous and noble and brave. And look how kind of crappy and decadent we are. Um, <laughs> and we need we need the moral guidance of the of our ancestors of the past. And that is kind of the mode of history that exists in the pagan world but there isn't a sense of uh telos like of an end goal of an Mm -hmm. end point there isn't really a sense of um time progressing there isn't a sense of things gradually getting better toward a certain end uh and there isn't sense of an overarching meaning like a, a narrative of meaning that is um, you know, you have a place in this great, great meta narrative story that uh, oh. you are an actor within history, and you can change the course of history or affect the course of history. These are all later conceptions that come through the, well, 
plat- I would say neoplatonic and uh, Abrahamic or Judeo-Christian uh, prophetic tradition. Okay. So we're uh, a few. It's kind of like at the intersections of those two things. There emerges a different kind of history, which is based on analogy. So the Neoplatonic worldview is very hierarchical and correlative. Mm -hmm. So everything is by finding analogies and correspondences between things. So the assumption is all of these things emanated from one thing. And so there was a perfection at one point or a, a total completion or a fullness and that fragmented apart and that created the world as we know it but there are elements of sympathies between the things of this world that we can examine through different levels of intellectual uh activity okay by different levels of analysis and so the idea is that Joachim of Fior constructs his history, and not just Joachim, but also uh, Joachim inherits a tradition. He's not purely coming into a vacuum. Who we really need to go to is St. Augustine, because St. Augustine very distinctly marries Neoplatonism and the the Judeo-Christian prophetic tradition in his worldview, and that's the worldview of the church. But that was like... Six, eight hundred years before uh, yeah, Joaquin, right? But, so, yes. But okay. he is the most influential church father in the entire Catholic Church. Like, his influence permeates all of Catholicism from beginning to end. There's just hmm. no period where St. Augustine is not kind of like the bee's knees of the monastic world. Well, he is very fun to read. Yes, he is. So... You can't really can't really blame him for that. Right. But (laughs) what he did was he wrote extensively on time. So like book 11 of the confessions Mm -hmm. is uh, is kind of Augustine wrestling with what is time. And you don't really have people doing this kind of stuff before him. Other other ways of looking at analog. uh, What would we call this? analogical mode of doing history as opposed Mm -hmm. to causal mode of doing history is um, Neoplatonism. As it goes into the Arab world, uh, we get people like Abu Mashar Mm -hmm. who come up with these things like the theory of great, the great conjunction theories. So the idea that world religions are produced by the various conjunctions of planets and that like oh. history can be mapped out astrologically but this so see the how this is also a form of doing history by analogy mm-hmm. as opposed to like reading into the causes and so there are these two competing or but independent modes of looking at time which are not how we think of looking at history today but the question is how did we get to today's understanding of history so the prophetic aspect of history eventually got fleshed out in the renaissance with people doing textual criticism we have people like um casabon doing all Mm -hmm. sorts of philological work and um the prophetic interpretation of history kind of dissolves and turns into 
the uh, natural theology approach to history, which is, you know, you're using the Bible as a historical guide, but you're looking for proof in the world. And there's ideas like of natural philosophy, new samples are being brought from all over the world of different kinds of animals and plants and minerals. And so these bodies of knowledge start growing and growing and reaching these critical masses. And that's when we start getting things like taxonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Linnaeus or, um, later kind of Darwinian forms of evolutionary taxonomy. But you'll see that the, the throughout the centuries, the way that people constructed history was by, was apophatically by denying elements of biblical history or accepting them. Okay. So people would look at different episodes in the Bible and say like, is this true? Is this not true? How can we know whether it's true? And we came to a understanding of our current history through this kind of sick et non approach to the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we started adding in things like geology, but even in the geological field, there were, let's say schools of catastrophism versus schools of these gradual changes. And so the catastrophists were thought of as people who were holding on to the Noah's Ark narrative of the flood or these kind of um, creationist kind of all this happens in one day narratives. Um, So history gets very slowly and gradually built up by the um, refutation or acceptance of various things in the Bible. And those uh, that history was built up through um, basically theology and prophecy. So was, but all right. So, but then Joaquin de Fiore, um, like, would you consider him a historian at all? Or did he just sort of, uh, or was his history, was his knowledge of history based entirely on, um, biblical narrative as well? I, I would consider him a, a mystic who wrote, okay. um, because, and and I, I suppose mystic and prophet are very interchangeable terms. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's the same with the word apocalypse, right? It doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world. It just means the revelation or the lifting of a veil, right. um, the removing from hiding. So that's very much intertwined with mysticism. But here's the thing. Lots of people have mystical experiences. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have religious experiences. They're not uncommon, not in the Middle Ages, not today. Uh, but what is rare is people who can convey them in a meaningful text right. that other people can understand and that other people see importance and significance in. And it's not just psychobabble or or some idiosyncratic flight of fancy. Mm-hmm. It it's very difficult to get your mystical visions to mean something to a bunch of people. And that's what Joaquim Fior did. It's just that his mystical visions are about the three persons of God and their interactions through letters and numbers and how they unfurl through time, basically. Hmm. Um, and, and it's kind of this process of creation, a fall, and then of, of a return back to, the the fullness of god so it's it's in a way a a hierarchy of being 
but that is temporally oriented rather than spatially oriented. How did he, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to, the, the, there's a, there's a leap in there that I would, that I didn't realize I was having trouble making, but like this concept of, uh, you know, like what, what, I don't even know how to, how to put this question, <laughs> but I'm, I'm having trouble uh, finding the leap between uh, Joaquin de Fiore's like mystical vision or his, uh, his sort of like concept of, of space in, um, in the Holy land or whatever. Uh, so it leads into this concept of like the different ages of Christianity where you have, uh, you know, the father and then the age of the son, and then afterwards will be the age of the Holy spirit. But even that is, is kind of like the, the Greek concept of like the, the ages going by where you've got like the golden age and the silver yes, age. But those um, are mythical. Those are mythical. They're not and he concretized with actual generation. Like Joaquin okay. Fior calculates 42 generations from the beginning of time. Okay. And then flips it and, and calculates 42 generations from the birth of Christ to the end of the age of the sun. And then he presumes another oh. 40, sorry, 42 generations. Did uh -huh. I say 48? You said 42. Okay, yeah, then another 42 generations for the age of the Holy Spirit. But the thing is that before the age of the Holy Spirit would come, mm -hmm. there, the, they would have to fight the Antichrist. And it's not something that would happen in a mystical other world or like in an allegorical way. It was like the Antichrist was literally just like other nations, um, Islam, it was heretics. It was, you know, the the anti the, the beast has seven heads, and mm -hmm. those seven heads were always interpreted as different historical forces. So the Mongols end up being one of those, or um, and basically, once they would beat defeat the Antichrist, and then they would convert the Jews, and then there would be another, however. 42 generation long period of an earthly Sabbath. But okay. so what Joachim of Fior does is he immanentizes the Antichrist. He's like, the Antichrist is coming soon in history, and we have to prepare for him, basically. And oh. that's what gets picked up by the spiritual Franciscans. It gets picked up by people like Roger Bacon, um, Albertus Magnus. Oh, I don't know if Albertus Magnus we can say, but he was Roger Bacon's teacher. Yeah. But Roger Bacon definitely picked up this so um, then thing. This sort of it, stretched out like the like the your, your you know your your everyday thinker's vision of time stopped being like you know uh, you know who's going to be the next king or. Yeah, you know, how it's our an, crops going to be this year? And instead, it's suddenly like, oh, man, we've been doing this for a while and things are coming to a head. Yeah, it becomes kind of like a new sort of astrology for intellectual people. Mm -hmm. But it's not based on stars or whatever. It's based on correspondences with biblical narratives about visionary events. Hmm. Right. So the the word pictures have correspondences in real world. So it'll be like the last world emperor. Well, who's the last world emperor? Well, maybe it's Frederick the second, but then, you know, Frederick the second dies and then, 
well, it couldn't have been him, so maybe it'll be somebody <laughs> else. So now it's, you know, Charles or it's mm-hmm. um or even maybe it's Elizabeth or and and John D is is gets um really interested in Joachim Fior. Um hmm. and the the Monas hieroglyphica is a fusion of Wacomite letrism and Alkindi's theory of rays. Like if you really? actually read the 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 guts of it it's it's the marriage of those two things he's trying to bring because Joachim Fior read the bible and he, and he saw that it said god is alpha and omega mm-hmm. and so he like took that literally and saw like the a was like a triangle that had the three parts of the trinity and the omega also has kind of three points mm-hmm. and so and so he saw these kind of ideas of how the cosmos was created from these letter and then number relationships. So he looks at pairs of things. He looks at triads of things. He looks at, and he populates the Bible with all of these different sets of correspondences. And um, that kind of way of looking at stuff uh, was very popular in the uh, Kabbalistic circles but mm-hmm. this is a different vector than Kabbalah, right? Because Kabbalah right. is coming from Spain. Well, not and... only that, but it's very new in the yes. 13th century. Yeah. Yes. But I, I suppose we're talking more about like the reception period. So what I'm interested okay. in is like how um, Pico and how uh, Ficino and how D and how all, all of these guys are subtly interacting with these currents, but especially pico and especially d so let's talk about pico did 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 pico read and know about did he uh was he influenced by walkinism that's what i'm digging into right now Hmm. and the problem is that he had works on time that are lost Ah. and and but we know that he was increasingly digging into this kind of stuff and he wrote a book called the heptopolis Mm -hmm. which i have yet to read um, but I that, plan on seven it. cities. Well, no, it's just like the idea of like the seven days that of creation. Um, oh, okay. And so the idea is that this, we're in the seven days of creation. And so he goes in and he breaks down the seven days. And so I'm interested in how he looks at time and breaks down time. But what's the important thing about Pico is that his 900 theses were written for a disputation to be had in front of the Pope. Mm -hmm. And what he's trying to do is argue for why the Jews should convert to Christianity. Because Pico thinks that he's living in the end times and that he has come, that, that he has this knowledge culminated in him of these different traditions of marrying the Christian and the Jewish traditions. Mm -hmm. So these are the Wacomite ideas, right? Of marrying, uh, of, of having this fullness of knowledge that they would have thought in the Renaissance was Christian Kabbalah, the Christian interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that if only the Jews could see the Christian, uh, interpretation of Jewish Kabbalah, they would understand Kabbalah. It'd be like a secret key. And then that, that would kind of reconcile both of the nations and that would bring about the end of times. Hmm. So 
Pico has these uh, grand expectations of his own personal efforts. And I, my belief is that those are rooted in this Wacomite apocalypticism, if not directly, then through certain currents. The thing is that Pico was a good friend with Savonarola. And Pico wanted to be buried in a uh, Dominican habit. Really? But yes. Um, but he was a very close friend of Savonarola, and Savonarola and his uh, Pico's nephew, Gianfrancesco, uh-huh. had his papers for quite some time after his death. And he, they may have edited or changed some of his papers. Um, Wait, and so, so did Savonarola go into his whole like crazy period? That was after Pico died. That was like during, yes, but like. Okay. It was all happening sort of during that period. Okay. Because <clears throat> Pico was assassinated, wasn't he? He was murdered. Yes. But yeah. He was poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. On the day that uh, Charles entered into uh-huh. Florence. Charles V. Oh, shit. That is a really uncomfortable coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's weird. Okay. So that was what, like 1498? I think it's uh, uh, 94. Four, I believe. Ninety-four. <laughs> Either ninety-four or ninety-two. No, okay. it's not ninety-two. It's ninety-four. All right, and that um, was. I could be wrong though. Yeah, but that was. But in any case, it's around this period that these processes are happening. Okay. Huh. But there's this idea, and another dimension to this historicization is the Prisca Theologia. Right. So Mm -hmm. the idea is that Ficino is essentially marrying pagan and and um, Judaic wisdom narratives, these wisdom traditions as one giant wisdom tradition that stems back to Adam. Right. Right. And so the idea is that, like, there is a historical continuity and we can trace it by tracing these these various ancient sages who had various takes on the original truth. But if we bring together all the disparate parts that we've inherited from these different traditions, maybe we can reconstruct that original wisdom and then we can uh, really do work. And that's where you get inspiration for things like Enochian magic, because, mm-hmm. you know, D is like, Oh, I'm unsatisfied with, the magical letters or the systems that I've inherited. So I need to rework the system and go and, and basically receive the uh, system as it was used by the angels or as it was spoken in the time of Adam. Yeah. So there's this idea that like we are historically contingent with biblical characters and that um, the fall is a historical event and it can be understood in Neoplatonic terminology and if through things like alchemy, especially alchemy, mm-hmm. uh, through things like mystical theology, through different forms of letrism, through astrology, through talismanic magic, depending who you are, you, we can restore the wisdom of the ancients and basically um, – restore the world and there's a strong element of christian apocalypticism of 
if you're, you know, among the Catholics, it was, we're going to make everybody Catholic. But among the Protestants, it was, we're going to make every, we're going to make a Protestant world empire. There was this, um, this concept also existed in Kabbalah, like in, in Jewish Kabbalah. The, yes. the There's a Lurianic concept, yep. uh, Tikkun Olam, like the, yep. the, the completion of creation or sort of like, it was still, we were still in, right. we were still present in the seven days of creation and trying to you know, put everything together in the right way. Right. And you have huh. Tsimtsum, which is the, like the, the fallenness of the one yeah. breaking into its myriad forms. And so that is a very much a Neoplatonic idea that gets kind of jumbled up and mixed in with all of these different Hebrew Kabbalistic theories. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause these traditions are not as like, uh, like isolated, isolated as people like to think that they are. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, yeah. that's interesting. Well, so um, what, what, what gets messy with the Joachim of Fior thing is that what he is doing is it looks on the surface, just like Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Like he is, if you look at the Psaltery of 10 strings, it's this, he's, he had this vision of a Psaltery, which is like a kind of harp with 10 strings. And each of the 10 strings has like a virtue on the one side and then it has like an archangel or angel or human or (laughs) thing that corresponds to it and that like god plays this psaltery and that's how like he creates the world so there's that that's one thing one and then there's his letterism which is like mapping out time through using using the mystical meanings of letters Uh and so all of these things, they sound like Kabbalah, but they're not technically Kabbalah. They're would he Wachimism have... or... <laughs> yeah, and they, were they developed indiv- independently? Uh, I mean, like, by the 12th... By the 13th century, the 12th century, he might have had access to maybe, like, the Sefer Yetzirah or something. So, it, I don't know if he had access to that stuff, but what, what he did have access to is the Judeo-Islamic Mediterranean world, right? Uh, so he's living in southern Italy, which is predominantly Greek. It's more Greek than Latin um, right, in terms right. of, like, the monastic communities there. Like, he was a minority as a Latin Christian. but Because he was so in have, Calabria, which was, yes, like, the toe yeah. of the boot. Yeah. And then he spent some time in Sicily as well. And but that whole area was like very, very densely populated with Arabs, Jews um, and uh, and Greeks. So wasn't that also where Pythagoras was holed up? I mean, I know that was a thousand fifteen hundred years before, but wow. Yes. I mean, some people have seen a connection there, but it's like hard, like to make that link without tracing it out <laughs> concretely <laughs> you'd have to see what uh joaquin de fiore thought about beans i suppose <laughs> right but it re- what it really does is it kind of like throws a wrench into our systems of definitions because it's mm-hmm. like what is kabbalah when does it begin like right. there's ecstatic kabbalah and then there's like letrism and then there's like the lullian ars combinandi and mm-hmm. and some of these things actually precede, like Joachim of Fior precedes technically the official beginning of Kabbalah, but right. he is not himself Kabbalah, but he's probably, I mean, he's definitely tapping into earlier 
traditions and forms of doing these mystical practices like Islamic electricism, for mm-hmm. example, which is a very uh, ill understood subject at the moment. <laughs> Because uh, everybody's interested in like Hebrew gematria, but very few people know anything about Islamic letterism. Are you saying letterism? Like, yes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Like the study of the mystical properties of letters in huh. at, like so if Gabriel speaks Arabic to you and you have to recite this back in Arabic, then mm-hmm. and the Quran is the map of the universe, then there must be some sort of mystical divine properties that are underlying the Quran. Which that's that's total Al Kindi stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Well yeah. Uh, I don't know Al Kindi necessarily, but like definitely all kinds of people were into into this kind of mysticism. Hmm. Um does Al Kindi have letterist works? I'm not sure. Yeah, uh he actually invented uh, I mean, he didn't do it on purpose, but he invented cryptanalysis through uh analyzing letter combinations and letter frequencies in the Quran, thinking that there was hidden messages or hidden meaning in the, um, in the number of times that various letters were used. And through that, he invented cryptanalysis, which is, I think, fascinating. I, I, uh, yeah. Al Kindi is just a giant. Like I tried to get into it. I I wanted to write like an article about Al Kindi. And so I was like, Oh, I'm just going to go read it. I'll just go read up about him. And, you know, five minutes into it, I'm like, this is going to take years. <laughs> yeah. No, Al Kindi is just like, you, you can't overestimate Al Kindi, just his influence yeah. on on all of the important, like in Picatrix, Al Kindi, major source. In Roger Bacon, <laughs> Al Kindi, major source. In, in John D, Al Kindi, major source. In Agrippa, John D. And what's funny is that like De Radiis only survives in Latin. Really? So, like, we don't actually have an Arabic version of it. We just have a Latin version because it was so important here. So, here, in the in West, the we West. Uh, we love to overlook the uh, contributions of, of Arabic thinkers to um, how stuff Yeah, language barriers. Well, I think it's language barriers and just sort of, like, um, uh, you know, cultural centrism and, uh, you know, at least in the United States, we have sort of yeah. a a uh, systemic or a, a really prevalent like Islamophobia that keeps us away from it too. Um, but like Al Kindi, like the more I study him, the more he, the, or the more I read about him, the more he just crops up everywhere. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, he's definitely worth looking into more. I need to do it myself too. Uh, yeah. oh, all right. So, okay. So that's, that's a lot of stuff to sort of chew on. Like, like Joaquin de Fiore and the stuff that he was working on, um, really influenced a lot of thinkers and a lot of thought, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of core concepts we have. One of the things that's fascinating is the, the imminence of, of the apocalypse or the imminence of the end times, mm-hmm. um, or the imminence of the, you know, fight with the antichrist. And that idea, like that shaped sort of the Protestant reformation, uh, oh, yeah. And it's a huge influence now in the way like uh, American e- evangelical Christianity operates and the way uh, it even influences like international politics, like the the, yep. the way that that America supports various factions in the Middle East. Like it's that's weird. And, and not just that, but also radical leftism, oh, really? radical 
Well, yeah, I mean, the entire idea of a historical dialectic between classes, which culminates mm-hmm. in a classless end of history, ah. that is the Marxist utopia. The, the, so Hegelian, the Hegelian dialectic, right. Right, right. Or in in the fascist scheme of things, it's once you've expelled all of the foreigner or whatever is the internal enemy, then we can live in a thousand year Reich. Um, so it's really like any form of progressivism Mm -hmm. where you are moving inevitably towards some sort of ideologically formative, uh, end goal. Um, that is, uh, I, I don't know if we can necessarily say that Joachim Fior spawned all of that thinking, but he's definitely a massively critical figure in, um, developing that way of thinking. We need a new one of those guys. We need somebody to sort of tell us, like, there's there, there might not be an end game. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing, is that, like, the, the, that's the ever-competing uh, duality of man, is the, mm-hmm. the teleological aspect and, and the kind of just wandering um, aimlessly aspect. And yeah. <laughs> my, my approach to it is just that, you know, progress can be measured and there is such a thing as progress in a way, but it isn't irreversible. And maybe we need to look at it as like, maybe short-term goals are better than, um, than fixing the entire world. Yes. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That too. Instead of trying to think of your life within a, a massive historical narrative that like where you're at the heart of the action mm-hmm. that like that can breed some pretty extreme behavior. I don't know. It's like some people, they need that. Um, so it, it, it really depends on what your narrative is. It just seems that the world is a giant competition of these different teleological narratives, these different streams of, or directions of progress that we can go into uh, and probably, yeah. yeah. And all sort of fueled by the same sort of desire to reach some sort of like, perfected end time it's it's a uh it really is a i don't want to speak too negatively of it but it's kind of a virus of platonic thinking it is i can see that actually it is a byproduct of platonism and all of the different strains that platonism has taken in christianity in paganism in islam and Mm -hmm. in judaism and they've all been sort of syncretized and so, yeah, the people who argue kind of against these ideological apocalypses are usually people who are arguing against any sort of grand narrative to history. Um, they're just like, no, like these are stories we tell ourselves. These are not necessarily the reality. The reality is far more complex. Even if there is a grand narrative to history... Uh, who are we to even assume that we know what that narrative is, right? I mean, like, right. like we, we should be doing the best that we can without sort of assuming yep. that we know what the grand outcome is supposed to be. Well, those AI Silicon Valley tech priest guys sh- sure seem to think that they know that their apocalypse is going to be the right one. And, you know, the, everybody's got their, their own apocalypse. Oh, they all seem to think it's very, very imminent. Uh, the singularity. Yeah, <laughs> I was listening to uh, I don't know the guy's name, but he's this transhumanist guy on Joe Rogan the other day. Uh-huh. And I'm just sitting there listening to him. I'm like, 
this is the guy that like Alex Jones is always raving about. Like Alex Jones is being like the Silicon Valley guys. They want to like turn us all into spiritual entities and subsume <laughs> us into the fourth subdimension or something like that. Uh, I'm like, that's this guy. This guy is he's the guy that wants to do that. <laughs> All right, I have another uh, Joaquin de Fiore question about. Uh, yep. So one of the things that you mentioned in your, uh, you you mentioned earlier, you mentioned Linnaeus earlier, but you you kind of directly compared um, uh, Joaquin to Linnaeus uh, when you when you talked about sort of the um, the taxonomy of time, right? So right. so uh, and maybe maybe. Um, so what you've described so far about uh, Joaquin's taxonomy was, you know, the the age of the father, the age of the son, the age of the Holy Spirit. But did he also... Um... That's one breakdown. He's got all sorts of breakdowns. Okay, he's also got like was... a sevenfold breakdown. Uh-huh. Well, he had the and 42 uh, yep. generations breakdown. Yep. Did he also kind of look at uh, like a history of, you know, I don't know, Europe at that time and sort of say like, oh, yeah, like between the you know, the Roman, you know, the fall of the Roman empire. And now this is the, he wouldn't have called it the middle ages, of course, cause he was in it, but you know, did he have a name for that? Did he have a name for like, uh, you know, Imperial Rome and Republican Rome and well, did- so people living in the middle ages didn't know that Rome collapsed, right? Like that's a, it's Wait, a, that's what? a narrative. Yeah. People living in the middle ages, Rome is Byzantium, right? And like, that's just, and the church oh. is, is the Roman empire. And so, so did they think that they were Roman? Yeah, they thought that like ever since Christ and that's why like in Dante, Virgil is like uh, kind of given this prophetic power insight because he foresaw the rise of Caesar, who was going to kind of set up this earthly empire that Christ could come into and then that the marriage of kind of Christ and the Roman Empire is what would kind of bring about world Christianity. And right. so I'm way confused by this now. All right. So the idea of a decline of Rome uh-huh. is a story. Rome right. never collapses. It just like it, it changes places and some of its administrative functions kind of like fizzle out mm-hmm. and it withdraws from certain colonies. But like largely those networks become a synonymous either with the Byzantine empire or with the church. Okay. And then the so the the infrastructure of the Roman Empire gets maintained to some extent by these new forms. And so for all intents and purposes, that's the Roman Empire. All right. So then like but all the client states that used to be part of the the Roman Empire mm-hmm. uh develop like their own forms of government or they start having like um you know kings yeah, but they all- and look to Roman law and Roman authority and they're all either in bed with the Orthodox Church which is Greek and therefore Roman or with the Latin Western Church which is also Roman so then those two those two like Holy Sees or whatever they just sort of absorb the leftover administrative infrastructure of the whole of the Roman Empire Right. And then so you have this then relationship between Rome and let's say the Carolingians. So Charlemagne Mm. and Charlemagne legitimizes them and they legitimize Charlemagne. And so they crown him Holy Roman Emperor. And that kind of 
resurrects in a symbolic way the empire which had disintegrated slash moved slash Uh being absorbed into different places i mean a lot of rome was taken up uh taken over by the islamic world or by Uh the the persians or um largely the islamic world when once that starts to um arise and there's always the huns to talk about and that sort of thing (laughs) and vandals goths uh when i was a kid when we were really bad my uh parents used to compare us to attila the hun (laughs) oh yeah that's a great uh all right so then all right this is totally totally off topic but i really have to know this like at what point did the collapse of the roman empire become sort of a dominant story it must have been before well was it so it's petrarch really okay so petrarch creates this idea he basically coins the idea of the dark ages and Uh, he 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 sees like 15th century 16th century uh no he's writing in the 1300s um so he's one of the like earliest humanists Uh uh-huh um, that's the thing about the this the Renaissance thing. Like the Renaissance starts technically, there's like a 12th century Renaissance, and then like people think the Renaissance is in the 1400s, but it starts as early as the 1300s with guys like Dante and Petrarch. Mm-hmm. So it's it it's a not a useful term. Um, <laughs> but the idea of like there was a glorious age, and then there was an age of shit, and then there was like a a, a renewal of that glory. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Petrarch who invents okay. that, and um, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily uh, uh, well. He's definitely not involved with Joaquin Fior. Dante is, however, very mm-hmm. explicitly. Um, but Petrarch also is kind of implicated in the development of history because he's interested in resurrecting these old classical texts. So while some people are interested in the biblical texts, Petrarch is interested in the old Roman pagan texts, and that plays a big role in um, developing humanism as we've come to understand it, uh, an interest in translating ancient documents and a focus kind of on rhetoric and getting the message across rather than on logic chopping Mm -hmm. which was very popular in the schools all right so it wasn't gibbon (laughs) well gibbon is the one who really creates the narrative of a decline that there's like this like long process of things kind of like gradually there's like a golden age of like roman excellence and then eventually that peters out and everything falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah, that's given. So, but these are all steps in the development of a historical consciousness. Like, and and it, and it starts with the idea of periodization and setting up, breaking up time into intelligible chunks. And okay. that's something Joachim Fior does very very uh competently and he's also in the tradition of augustine doing it um but that is why i say that he's like linnaeus in taxonomy because linnaeus is one of these people who started to break up patterns into chunks and then we basically worked for what we we still don't work from linnaean taxonomy today we've evolved those systems Mm -hmm. but he did the initial legwork of taking a what we might call a a plenum 
and chopping it up into parts that okay. are then intelligible. So Joachim Fior does that with history. And you can also say that like the astrologers who are Neoplatonists, they do that through the application of things like houses and decans and constellations. That's another way of breaking up time into chunks. Um, right. So, and then that all of these different things sort of converge during the Renaissance period and they create this sense of temporalization. Okay. Huh. Which again is something that has really shaped the way the modern world works and looks at, it, at itself. Yes. Yeah. And a huge part, like a really, uh, I suppose, dark aspect of colonialism as well, because different cultures, even in within Europe, uh, kind of have different relationships with time, different relationships with history. Mm-hmm. And when colonialism spread about, they brought this linear narrative of time with its kind of break, uh, breakdowns, not necessarily the Wacomite breakdown, but a kind of uh, different interpretations of how time ought to be broken down along lines that were generated from within the Catholic Church. Um, and, uh, uh, that's kind of where you get, uh, a lot of, I suppose, alienation from different groups of people who might be more interested in cyclical time or semi-cyclical time, um, time that is based on different intervals. Like mm-hmm. time is really like there are certain objective, I, I suppose those aren't even objective, semi-objective criteria, like the revolution of the moon for months mm-hmm. and the revolution of the sun for the year uh, or the day. But other than that, the rest is up for grabs. How you're going to populate that that plenum of, of how you sense time mm-hmm. is really up for debate. And these debates weren't over in Europe either. Uh, Even by the 20th century, one of the main debates between, let's say, Henry Bergson and Albert Einstein was as to what is time? Like, what is the nature of time? Uh, You get Heidegger involved in this, too. And it's like Einstein thinks time is that which clocks measure. (laughs) But bear. Erickson is like, no, you're being an idiot. Like there's, there's this element of the qualia of duration, mm-hmm. um, like of synchronicity of like, there are all sorts of things about time that are experienced in our first person field of experience, uh, that are not relative to that, which clocks measure as a sort of technical materialist way of looking at time. Um, yeah, we still haven't totally decided, I think, what, what time actually is. Right. Yeah. Who knows? And yeah. I mean, because there's there's like, I mean, time and space are relative, but we have narratives of time and we have qualia of how time feels. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, it's like, okay, maybe it's not technically a real thing. But at that point, it's like, is love technically a real thing or... <laughs> <laughs> like that, like it gets you down those kind of holes. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, do we have a love clock yet? Can you measure love? <laughs> uh, there's probably certain biometric ways to to do it. I'm I sure people would be very we, terrified to take that test. If we squish together a little bit of Bruno and a little bit of uh, Newton, um, you can measure measure love with a with a scale. 
Yes. <laughs> and oh, speaking of Newton, Newton is also kind of implicated in this whole story because Newton wrote kind of volumes and volumes of uh, apocalyptic commentary. He was very oh right, insistent. he was fascinated by the apocalyptic stuff, wasn't he? Yeah, like, he had the so whole. Like, Alchemy was part of that too, uh-huh. because it's part of this idea of like restoring nature. And then he has um, like a allegory involving like King Solomon's temple as a map of yep. the universe and time and stuff. Yep. So Newton is very much a, a figure. Um, again, no direct links to Joaquin here because mm-hmm. it had passed through enough people, but definitely catching on these currents that were going around um, at the time. And yeah. So, all right. So we've been talking about this for a long time and I feel like I'm starting to get a better idea of why Joaquin de Fiore and his ideas and his, his ideas of time and, and like apocalyptic immediacy are so uh, important for, for us to understand and for us to have like a, you know, a, a good grip on. But so for, for the listeners, what do you think is a lesson that they should take away from this? Like, what's something for them to contemplate after they've finished listening to this podcast, where they're sort of like, "What the hell did I just listen to?" Like, what, what, what should be, what should they contemplate? What, what apocalypse do you believe in? Oh shit, that's a really good question, actually. Like, like, what is the apocalypse that you are imminentizing at the moment? That's kind of, I think, what is something that we can all reflect on. Oh man, and those can be political or religious yep. or yep. or even yep. personal. Like, it could be. It yep. could be. It could be oh. Terrence McKenna's Time Wave twenty twelve. It can be. It could whatever. be global like warming. It could be. Yep. It um, could be that. It could be. You know, the whole state of Israel thing. It could be the yep. return of the Antichrist. I mean, it could be even like inside your own thing. Like, uh, I'm going to finish college next year, and everything's going to be better. Yeah, and then it's like, why do you think that there is going to be an end point? Like, what is this like projection from yourself that? thinks that the world will tend to per, a perfect perfection. Yeah. Like where is this obsession with perfection coming from? And I think those are two things to contemplate. Oh man. So Dan, I have a, I have another question for you. If you um, finish your doctorate and then you go on to be like a, uh, a mad scientist, I don't know if there are ever historians <laughs> that are mad scientists. Will your supervillain name be Dr. Apocalypse? That'd be that'd be nice. Right. Hopefully, I'll 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 have diversified my portfolio, so <laughs> it could be like some various kinds of apocalypses. Right. <laughs> it's gonna be Doctor a really long supervillain name. Hermetic, Joachite, apocalyptic. I don't know. <laughs> so, are you uh, are you producing any uh, any works based on this? Do you have like a Aside from your um, YouTube lecture, do you have some papers or some book coming this out? This is kind of what my dissertation is about. So I'm I'm sort of discursively exploring all of these um, ways in which Neoplatonism and the uh, biblical prophetic tradition mm-hmm. have merged and diverged and come to influence various intellectual currents in in the renaissance and in the early modern period and and really joaquin is a a chunk of that larger project but i think one of the main 
themes in all that is syncretism because it's like these various Joaquin was very keen on blending the Jews and the Christians into one thing, of course, being subsumed by Christianity. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we can't expect these people to be tolerationists or whatever. Right. This is the 12th century. Yeah. His one uh, thing was still Christianity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's and, and to assume otherwise is to presume that he didn't actually believe in what he believed that he yeah. held to some higher doctrine of philosophical subjectivity or relativism or whatever that, that maybe modern people hold, but that obviously we can't expect him to have held that. And um, so, yeah, I'm really just exploring how things like the Prisca Theologia uh, by Ficino, this, this narrative of various philosophers throughout time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at kind of stuff like uh, Roger Bacon and his project for, fighting the antichrist basically and preparing for the antichrist by uh, developing geography, developing history, developing the technologies of the Latin West Mm -hmm. in order to like prepare for the coming onslaught of antichrist and how this project would be recapitulated throughout various generations. Uh So, So that's sort of what I'm looking at. And I, I basically I'm cutting myself off with the Rosicrucians. Um, the Rosicrucians are kind of the last culmination of this project to, you know, alchemically regenerate nature. So you're um, going to have some John D in there, but that's pretty yes. much the last, uh, interesting guy. Yeah. Because the Monas is the, is, I would say the last direct link to Joachima Fior. If, so anything other than that would be kind of syllogism rather than a direct influence. If somebody wanted to start uh, learning more about Joaquin de Fior, um, are there any good uh, secondary sources, yes. any good books about him? There's all sorts of good stuff. Okay. Um, I would, I mean, if you go to that YouTube video, um, you've got I a think huge called, bibliography down there. Yeah, there's a big bibliography. And that's kind of the, all the constituent pieces of that project. But off the top of my head, um, Marjorie Reeves it, it okay. does really great work. Um, though I know you would need to find her works in a library because it's one of these books that are worth like two thousand dollars or yeah. something like that. Yeah, I have one right here, but it's not mine. Um, it's a university I, press somewhere, so it's worth as. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, another book that I really, really, really got a lot of influence out of was. Let me see if I can find. Uh, yes, here it is. I'll just pull it out. So it is Joachim Fior, A Study in Spiritual Perception and History by Delno C. West and Sandra Zimdars Schwartz. Okay. And that's published by Indiana, the Indiana University Press. And this really made me think about how, I suppose, prophecy affected the development of historical consciousness and made me want to pursue that in more detail. All right. And so if somebody wants kind of a one-stop shop, I'm pretty sure that's one of the more affordable books. All right. That sounds good. I'll um, I'll look those up and 
put links in the show notes, which I mean, I'll, I'll link to your video and then maybe I'll copy and paste some of your bibliography. <laughs> yep. Yep. The bibliography is yeah. all there. All right. Well, thanks. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really glad that we managed to go uh, almost an hour and a half without um, actually talking about the Picatrix. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've only scratched the surface, too. It's I know. There's <laughs> there's a ton of stuff in here. Well, I mean, it's it, it really, yeah, it opens up a ton of questions. I have a ton of I have a ton of questions that I don't even know how to put into words yet, but I'm going to, it's going to definitely affect the way that I read um, some of the, the older texts now, you know, what I what I look for. Uh, yeah, think about their yeah. apocalypse. <laughs> For sure. Okay, wait. So now tell people where they can find you online. Like assuming, let's just assume that everybody listening to this episode has never heard of you before. <laughs> All right. So you can find me on youtube.com slash the modern hermeticist. That's my YouTube channel. So subscribe there. Um, I also have a Twitter, which is twitter.com slash modern hermetics. Mm -hmm. So um, and I have a website, themodernhermeticist.com. So those are probably the three places that I dwell on the internet. Um, and yeah, that's if they find me there, they can ask me questions or whatever, and uh, I'll answer if I can. All right. And also uh, the Picatrix, your translation of the Picatrix is coming out February 8th. Yes, it is. And uh, we're very excited about that. And We've got some interviews lined up for that that'll be probably coming up in the near future so it's good that we got a break and talked about something else yeah my i, current, I agree my but current I, love <laughs> but i'm also really excited about your picatrix i'm very much looking forward to it um and maybe yeah, me too maybe if you aren't totally burned out on picatrix stuff uh i'll have you back oh man i'm <laughs> I'm I'm helping out in basically TAing a, a graduate seminar on Picatrix all throughout this uh this winter semester coming up so oh. I'll I'll be, I'll be knee deep in the Picatrix. You are going to be you're either going to be more in love with it or so sick of it that <laughs> Yeah. No, you just like you go into it. So I think one of the things we're thinking of getting students to do is um, find, say, take one particular source in the Picatrix, mm -hmm. like Al-Kindi or Abu Mashar or Ibn Washia or whatever, and then go and like research, do a research paper on one of these constituent parts and how their stuff ended up in the Picatrix. Oh, that and sounds that's actually, difficult. But, but it it's nice because you've got like 15 or 20 students mm -hmm. and you can get each of them to do one or two, like, you know, even if they only cover eight people, that's, that's plenty of nice research. Um, cause they're upper level history students. Well, when they get that research done, um, make a book out of it. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we'll see if it's up to snuff. But. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Dan. I um, It was uh, really great to hear from you and chat with you about this stuff again, and um, I hope that you have a delightful holiday season. Thank you, and uh, delightful holidays to you too, Eric, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to My Alchemical Bromance. You can find us on the web at myalchemicalbromance.com You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your other favorite podcasting app or location. If you're enjoying the podcast, 
You can support us for as little as $1 a month through the Arnomancy Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash Arnomancy. You can find a link to that in the show notes or other places on the website. We hope that you are having a delightful holiday season, and we will see you again in 2019.